We know the media like a good attention-grabbing headline, but they are not wrong when they talk about the rental crisis of 2022. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy a workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You, of course, know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now, we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. about rentals what has led to the current lack of supply and what are some of the options that we have to fix the problem but before we get to that there's a very special house behind you today megan one of my favorites (laughs) and oh god look at it it's magnificent it's the iconic opera house i know it's not technically a house but I found this 2021 image of, uh, 2016, I think it was, image in honour of World Oceans Day, and it's called the Kingdom of Coral. Uh, it's part of a series of artworks which, which celebrate the work of marine conservationist Valerie Taylor. Now, given how much I love to scuba dive and share the underwater world with those beautiful creatures, I thought it was just stunning, just stunning. Oh. But let's talk about the real issue. How hard is it to find a house to rent at the moment for well, Before you do that, um, Vivid is when the Sydney Harbour, oh, sorry, the Sydney Opera House comes alive, really. Mm. In recent years, you know, we've had some amazing images. Those sales transformed to some of the most incredible images. And it's vivid as we're recording, but I've been locked up with COVID, so I haven't been able to get out and see it. Oh, wow. I think um, one of my favourite marine photographers, Craig Parry, I think he had one in the last couple of days, but I couldn't actually find, you know, go back to a source image. So um, hopefully we'll see that soon. I'll have to keep an eye out. Hopefully I'll get let out. And I'll be able to rug up and go out and check it out. It's pretty magic. It'll be released. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm actually technically, uh, well, I'm out of the seven days, but I've still got symptoms and I'm not yeah. willing to inflict them on other people. And uh, on so I'm staying home. You All did right, well to avoid it this long anyway. Off track we I get. know. Let's talk about the real issue, as you mm. were saying, how hard it is to find a house to rent at the moment. Um, and this Rental crisis is real. Um, mm. And I, you actually flagged it, I think, before anyone else that I came across. I think it probably bit in Brisbane, probably maybe first. Much earlier. In the country. Yeah, yeah. It was actually, 
leading into COVID, we were starting to see it um, be a little bit of a problem, not, not, not a huge amount. And, of course, we manage a number of properties up here um, in partnership with another firm. But it, it was starting to, what we were starting to see, and we're going to go into this, how did this all come about? We were starting to see a decrease in the number of investors in the, the market. Um, and that was as a result of, of, of some things that happened. But all of the writing was on the wall from my point of view. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily look at stats. I'm very much about behaviour and property and supply and demand. So I look at all of those aspects much more than what are the stats doing and, you know, what does it tell us? Because the stats are the result of the behaviour, not mm, the lead indicator of the behaviour. Um, so, so that's much more where, where I like to look. And, and, and we were seeing, we're starting to see some indicators pre-COVID. COVID then, you know, messed everything up anything that we could have thought was happening in any market was was turned upside down but coming out of it um let's talk about that because i want to i want everyone to understand how we've got to this point of having a rental crisis because it isn't one one part of the the picture the greater picture that's caused it there are many many things that have gone into it and there are so many lessons that we need to learn. And, and I think that even individuals at the individual, at the tenant level, need to understand these factors to understand why just wanting um, something for, for you, which is an affordable house to live in, there's so much to go into actually making that happen. Mm. So in retrospect, of course, in hindsight, we understand a lot of things, a lot of things better than we do understand them at the time they're happening. And mm. certainly I think all the leading indicators that might have given anybody a clue to this rental crisis, but probably all these little tiny individual things that nobody really stitched together. And, yeah. and like you say, COVID has brought things to a head. Um, you know, unexpected challenges, poor decisions, regulatory, legislative, monetary, personal decisions at a macro level, right down to individual personal levels, trace back to before 2017 even, because, mm. of course, that's when, well, actually 2016 when APRA, started tightening up investor lending, you know, so we've got, you got, you know, and you can't blame one side of politics either. This is just... Because we've had multi-parties in this period of time and um, we've had elections where we could have changed parties. In different states and there's been mm. state legislation and changes to tenants' rights and not to say that tenants shouldn't have rights, they damn right should, but there's always the balance. And then you've yes. got public housing. It's yeah. been long-term... Uh, decrease in, in government investment in public housing and so that's mm. putting more pressure on the private rental market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> let's break it down. Let's have a look at it. How? Let's set the scene. So this is not a media beat up. So we often jump on, you know, headlines and say, yes, what a load of, you know, what, but it's not a media beat up and it's, it's not an attempt by property managers to make more money. And, and I think it's really important that we differentiate because people are looking to blame and, you know, the poor poor buggers that manage the properties are all often put in the middle of it. But let's set the, scene, set the scene. So supply and demand, the basis of economics. There are about 10 million households in Australia. 32% of those households rent. So that's about 2.6 million households that rent. Now, 30 uh, 3.7% of those are public housing, so your housing commission and so forth. That's about 300,000 households that rent from the government in some form, whether it's state or, or federal. So that means that 20, about 26% of the rental pool is actually provided by private landlords. That's 2.1 million households that rent from people who make a decision 
to invest in residential property. So let's look at supply because that's an important factor. When you've got a population that's growing and you need more households, where's the supply going to come from? Now, that's the number of private rentals available at any one time. Don't think about vacancy rate. You know, that's flashed all over the place. It's it's low. Let's, let's just look at how many are available in the pool to supply houses to people who want to live in them at, at, at any one time. So leading up to 2018, the number of privately owned rentals was actually trending up. So there was a really strong um, investment appetite from individuals to invest in investment property or to, to put their money into investment properties. And this is not without risk. Like this is not a risk-free strategy to own an investment <laughs> property. No. So this was really good for tenants. You know, they had choice, they had negotiating power, they could choose between, well, I like that, I don't like that, I'd like that, but could you put some air conditioning in? I'd like that, but I'd like ceiling fans. I'd like that, but can I have three pets? So there was there was actually a lot of ability for a tenant to say, yeah, I've got a few things to choose from here. I'll pay that for that and I'll pay for that for that. So there was a bit of bargaining and negotiating able to happen. But as the mix in the residential property market, there was some people that felt like there were too, there was too many investors actually buying investment properties. And it scared um, some of the folks out there, whether, whether it be at a, a, a legislative level or a regulatory level. And, and you mentioned Veronica APRA, so the financial regulator, they stepped in after the Royal Commission and put a lid on investment property lending. So what they said to the lenders was, you can lend to investors, but we're only going to let you lend 10% of Mm. your total pool to investors. So they put a cap on it. They also said, you can lend to investors, but you can't discount the interest rate anymore as you could before. So investors were stuck with whatever the, the variable rate was at the time. And they also said, by the way, don't let investors have interest-only loans. You've got to pay the principal off. So there was a reason reason that they they had this response. We're not going to go into it. We're not analytical like that. You can probably reel it off the top of your head. But there's a reason that these things are brought into place, and that was put a cap on investment spending so that the mix went back to owner-occupiers. So owner-occupiers... I will, have. I will throw in something. There's mm. been a sort of, there's this sort of equilibrium, this sort of numbers that um, is commonly accepted is the right balance, right? So 70% owner-occupier and 30% investor. So that's sort of been the general split that, you know, though powers that be seem to be happy with in terms of ownership split, right? So I guess if you go back up to the total percentage of those who rent being 32% of people who rent, I guess that sort of fits in nicely with that. What was happening was that that balance was tipping in terms of new borrowing was way in excess of the 30% that was seen to be an acceptable proportion of new funds going into property or new borrowing going into property um, was seen to, it was exceeding the 30%. And APRA was worried about the sustainability of property market, amongst other things. Mm. Um, and then there was that, it was a perfect storm. Responsible was, lending and... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If it hadn't happened at exactly the same time as the Royal Commission, then potentially the uh, restrictions wouldn't have bitten quite so hard because the banks sort of then went over-cautious mm. um, and really tightened up. And so you had the situation where investors might have been buying in any one area, maybe up to 50% of buyers might have been investors at one point. That then shrunk down to 5% in some places. So it's a massive um, contraction of one segment of the market. And 
if investors are then selling out and no investors are buying back in, mm. then your overall balance is, you know, you can, like you're saying, this is starting to see the setup for why we've got a shortage now. So this is just step one almost. Yeah. Well, there's other steps. <laughs> the very beginning. But, but what, that, what that did was it did, it contracted. It, it, it meant there were less investors buying investment properties to put into the pool for tenants to rent. Now, at the time, we, we have always run on about our client base from a buyer's agency point of view with Property Pursuit has always been about 45% investors and 55% owner-occupiers. So we dropped down to about 25% investors during this period. So without dropping overall client numbers, it actually encouraged owner-occupier spending. So there was a method there that actually achieved an outcome. Um, And at the same time, and I'll talk Brisbane prices, Brisbane prices were actually decreasing on the decrease. So we're on a decline at that point in time. It did take a percentage of the pool, the buying pool out. So it had had an effect on prices. We're not talking prices, we're talking rentals. So in 2020, uh, sorry, in 2019, so we've got a, a lessening. So we're on the rise. We've got a lessening of investors coming in and bringing new investment properties in. So we had a, tw- a federal election in 2019, and there was two very different approaches to the campaign in terms of properties. Labor wanted to scrap negative gearing, which is one of the benefits um, that property investors have in owning a property that doesn't produce a positive income. So they're paying more than they actually earn from the property. Uh, so there's a lot of fear and uncertainty and what will it mean? And, you know, so people sat on their hands. They always do with the federal election, whether <laughs> owner occupies or investors, people sit on their hands just to yep. wait to see what happens. But the coalition, of course, was elected and they changed some of the benefits of investment ownership. So particularly in relation to depreciation. Well, they actually did this before the election. They changed the changes yeah. you're bought in, yeah. So yeah. everyone was focused on the scrapping and ne- negative gearing, mm. but then this all came through um, around the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically what they were trying to do was to say that unless you bought brand new, which, you know, we don't love, um, and so they do the same thing to investors that they do to um, first home buyers. You know, they give investors more incentives to buy brand new property than existing stock, mm. right? Yet the reality is there's a lot more existing stock out there than there is brand new property. Um, and so you could have two apartments side by side. One of them is brand new, literally finished, and the other one was finished last year, but looks exactly the same, but somebody has bought it and only owned it for a year and then sold it, right? So in the oven, in that one's a year old, the oven in the brand new one's brand new, never been used. Mm. The person who buys a brand new one gets to depreciate the full value of the oven and the bath and the blinds and everything else, right? The person who buys the one-year-old one doesn't get to depreciate any of those things, even though they might have ten, nine years working life left in them, Right because of this change to the depreciation rule, right? And it's a smart, you, you might be thinking first-time buyers, who gives a shit? So what, investors? Whatever. <laughs> but the fact is that it, it really took a lot of people out of, if they didn't, if they were buying for tax reasons, which is a whole other issue and is a really bad reason to buy a property, but if they were buying for that reason, they're not going to be buying the older stuff. Yeah, but a lot of people don't buy for tax reasons, but what the depreciation allows them to do is actually sort of add to, at the end of the tax year, there's less of a loss. Yeah. So if they went sat down and did the numbers, it's not as attractive. That's right. So this 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 happened in 2019 ish. Um, so again, these changes were a negative to property investment. It was it was a bit of a setting back of oh, do I really want to take the risk? 
there is risk in owning an investment property. You put a lot of money into it and there's a lot of cost involved. So do I really want to do this? No, a lot of people said, no, I don't want to do this. Again, we saw less investors in our client mix in 2019, and I think the lending figures would probably support that um, compared to previous years. Now, going into 2020, there was a lot of fear and uncertainty that, you know, the breaks went on. We didn't know what was happening. It was such a period of strong growth, particularly in Brisbane leading up to that period of time, that late 2019 coming into January, February, March, it was absolutely firing. The demand was strong, prices were growing, and then boom, the bum fell out of the world and and we all sat back and there was a huge amount of fear and uncertainty. And from an investor point of view, and you know what? A lot of investors invested treated tenants with the utmost compassion when they lost their jobs. They couldn't pay their rents. There was rent abatement renegotiations and discounts. And I remember owners coming to me as a property management firm and saying, if there's anything that I can do to help my tenants, please let me know. I'm in a position where I'm okay. If they need help, I can help them. Others coming to me and saying, Megan, I've lost my job. I don't know what I can do to help, um, but we're all in this together. So it was a period of absolute compassion. But from an investor point of view, and remember investors are there to make money at the end of the day, um, and the vehicle that they're using is residential investment property. So so there was a loss of income during that period, but there was also quite a big loss of values as well. Do you remember that period? Oh, God. So I've got two properties that came up <laughs> that, like, as in the tenants moved out during that time. Um, yeah. The first one, just just pure bad timing, they mm. had happened to buy a property in Perth just before uh, lockdown and literally they had to move over there in the middle of lockdown. It would have been a nightmare. <gasps> They'd been great wow. tenants and that just was just shocking timing um, probably for them and for me. Uh, mm. And it was really difficult to find, that was for a house, and it was really difficult to find another tenant. Uh, this was the beginning of the first mm. lockdown. It was not very, it, the applications were not good as in the type of people generally looking to rent at the time weren't your, weren't your classic good tenant. Um and also the just the rent fell through the floor. So I'm yeah. currently I'm on my second lot of tenants since then. So in like I know I have tenants for long periods of time. That these current tenants are great. But can I tell you the rent is two hundred dollars a week less. At its peak, I used to get seven fifty a week for this house. And these people are getting five fifty a week at the moment. Look, wow. that's massively under under rent now because, of course, rents have started to rise. Mm. Um, and then also the same deal with my tenant. I've got a, a little apartment down in Bondo Beach, and I actually met with that um, tenant, went had a look at the property a couple of months ago, and I said to her, "You realise how cheap your rent is, don't you?" Because <laughs> <laughs> same deal, she's paying a lot less, but she went hardball in terms of what she wanted to pay. And I didn't have much choice. Didn't then. have choice at the time. No. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and that was the interesting period of time was if yeah. you could get someone to apply for the property, they had so much choice that they could be really quite hardball in the negotiations. Yep. And you know, and good luck to them at the time. I was happy mm. to have it rented out. Mm. And also I've got two very good tenants now, which is and look, that that little apartment in Bondo Beach always had amazing tenants on that, by the way. But um I think that What's interesting now, though, because what happens when rents start rising, the landlords don't immediately um, feel that. So I have not felt mm. rising rents for those two properties 
because I haven't received any increased rent yet, you know, because, because they're, they're in a lease. lease. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So this isn't an immediate um, bonanza for investors when rents start to increase. It's only the properties that become uh, come to the towards the end of their lease and there's a turnover in tenants or potentially a lease renewal where there might be a renegotiation of the rate. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, but what's been interesting, though, I remember you talking to me about what was becoming really scarce, and that was family homes up in mm. Brisbane. Mm. And, and I really, honestly, and then every time you'd say something to me and then about a month later, I think, oh, it's starting to happen down here, <laughs> you know, that, that people were moving back from overseas and, and who had previously yeah. rented out their places and that place was no longer available. Then, yep. of course, you've got a migration of, of people coming from other states. Oh, we're going to talk about demand in a <laughs> moment, but let's keep pushing through supply. <laughs> That's okay because your mind is going and we're getting there. So late 2020, things started to look a little bit more positive. Prices increased, so house prices increased, and many tired investors, the ones that had really been bashed about, took the opportunity to cash out of the market with a really good price. And that, of course, led to less investment properties in the market. So look at the the, the trend that we're seeing here. There's year-on-year yep. year factors that are actually pushing private investors out of the marketplace. And remember, private investors, what was my number, Veronica? What was the 28%. 20, 26%, I think 26%, it was. Sorry. So they supply 26%, is it? Yes, that's great. Of all households in Australia. So we're going down, down, down. The supply of these properties is actually going down. So let's have a look now at where we are at the moment. In 2022, investors have returned, but they're still not at the rate that is needed to satisfy demand. And this demand is going through the roof. Now uh, I have to add another thing in. Oh, you're going to talk about this? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking at the notes as you're talking, just for anyone listening. <laughs> I was going to add in something that Megan's about to tell you, so I'll just yeah, shut up. <laughs> yeah, so the, well, you know, the borders have opened up and tourism is resuming and properties that were put into the long-term rental pool during lockdowns are now being taken back out in the Airbnb. Well, they were taken out last year. They're not yeah. now being taken out. This is this has actually been a, a problem in the regional. It's really hit the regional areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and with increased domestic travel, that a lot of people that would not have even thought about long-term, uh, sorry, short-term rental, short-term. Mm-hmm. are now, tra- you know, changing their rental property from the short-term market into, uh, sorry, long-term from the short-term. long-term into the short-term. Another, mm-hmm. you know, another shortage. Mm. Some of those regional stories are awful. I've been hearing stories of families with jobs. It's not even like these people are on welfare. You know, they've got jobs, they've got kids. The kids are in schools and everything, and they're having to move 60 kilometres away from their communities because of this sea change, tree change phenomena. And, and, and this is what we're saying. This, this isn't a media beat-up. They are actually mm. reporting what we are seeing on the ground. This yeah. this is one of the real stories that isn't actually being over-exaggerated. This actually Just is happening. Yes. <laughs> it actually is happening. Mm. And and um and what we need to do is make sure we learn from what what has led up to this. So let's let's keep going with the supply side of things. So a lot of states are actually now making, and they were leading into COVID looking at making significant changes to their tenancy legislations. And, and a lot of that really isn't palatable to investors. You, you know, some of the things we've seen, Veronica, are, you know, not being able to end a tenancy unless there's three or four basic 
not, they're not even basic, they're significant reasons. Well, and this taking, is the end of a tenancy, not a yeah, end of a lease, not during a lease. Yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, because like I think one of the things you were talking about there is like not being able to require somebody's outside of a lease to vacate um, on without grounds. And mm. it's like, so if I decide I want to sell my investment property or I want to move into it or I want to do something else with it, then there's, there's basically four grounds. You, yeah. you can sell, move in yourself, family move in, or significant renovations. So that's kind of the basis of most of the changes the states are looking or have made. Which at least that's, I think, fair. And But the problem is, and I know what they're trying to do, is provide stability for tenants. Mm. But when you provide, when you create a situation which makes a mum and dad investor or an individual investor not feel that they have flexibility over their asset, then they might be less likely to either hold on to it or to buy one in the first place. And I think Absolutely. that's really going, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and it also comes down to tenant behaviour because if a tenant wants to um, take advantage of the legislation, then then they can they can do that. And there's no grounds for an owner to say, you know what, this has just been too hard. I, I can't keep doing this. An example is a tenant who continually pays in arrears but never actually is at the point where they're breached to the point of having to leave the property. But what that does to an investor's cash flow is it makes it very difficult for them to budget for paying mortgages and rates and maintenance and all of those sorts of things. So when someone isn't paying in accordance with their contractual requirements, which is the lease, but they keep pushing it to the point where they can't actually be put out of the property, but it has an impact on the owner, the owner used to be able to say, you know what, I, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. I need someone who will pay their rent on time and that's going to be removed. Mm. And let's face it, if you've got a shortage of rental properties and you find yourself with a tenant that's really not the most ideal tenant, then you're going to want to get rid of them and put someone in who yeah, is who going looks to be an after ideal the tenant. property. There's enough demand out there that rent, looks after it. it, is respectful in the process. Like that's that's what we want in in both on both sides of the equation. When when a tenant is respectful and owner is respectful, it's a really great relationship and it, it goes a long way to a very happy, livable home. When you put pressure on one side or the other to perform a certain way, which which isn't positive to the other party, then then that's where friction and conflict can come up. And and it and it and it will. Um because owners will look for, you know, reasons. That- and and look, that's not to say there's not some unscrupulous slumlord landlords out oh, there. Oh for sure. Yeah. You know, and, and like everything, most tenants are great. Most landlords are great. There's mm. the exceptions to the rule. You don't want legislation um to be legislating for the exceptions. Yes, really, the old cricket bat, to, bat, cricket bat to swat a fly, which we've seen in the um, in the industry too many times. So, mm. what? But for some, the decision around these legislative changes have meant that they've said too too hard. Yeah. I'm going to move my money somewhere else. The risk of owning this property and what I have to take on and my outgoings don't weigh up against the risk of the legislative changes and what I might have to do or or may not be able to do that I thought I could do. So. So overall, big picture, supply has dropped. And that's the except, you know, the exception is new units. We're not talking about those because we're 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 putting those into a different basket. We're talking about what families want to live in generally yeah. from a supply point of view. Which is sort of interesting because, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but suddenly it just occurred to me the build to rent sector has created this perfect storm. Well, 
Let's get to that in a minute, Veronica. <laughs> I'm only like tongue in cheek here, guys. Tongue in cheek. <laughs> it may be part of the solution if it if I'm it's sure done it well. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to it. Let's look at demand. Um, so, number one thing, people aren't leaving Australia. Mm-hmm. We used to have this exodus of of people who sort of um, looked at business opportunities, work opportunities, career opportunities, living opportunities, cultural opportunities to actually leave our shores and work overseas. That used to be a really, really big part of the net demand equation because there was people leaving, there was people coming in. But we've got all of this influx of people coming back to the country. Expats are coming back because it's safe. We've got good health care here. Our economy's doing okay. I oh, know inflation, you know all those other things, but realistically, in in the in the bigger scheme of things, you're not in a country where someone's going to come and take you at midnight from your home and put you in isolation for 21 days if you test positive. Like that we're is not, not the war. environment we're in. We're not at war, mm. so it is actually very safe, and and people have access to healthcare. Um, in other places, you know, I remember those visions of people in countries waiting to get into a hospital and they were bringing oxygen tanks out to them and they were there was just we have an ambulance ramping problem we've got a healthcare system problem mm. but but it's not people aren't dying in the street outside the hospital in their hundreds so so overall the decision of expats australians who have been living overseas has been to come home so we've got this net influx of people we haven't got an exodus of people as we used to have um and veronica households are multiplying you know, people were staying home for a number of years. They were, that people were living at home to take advantage of the opportunity to save. But now it's like, oh, geez, I just spent lockdown with the family. I think I need to go and find my own place. We just actually, literally, just were hearing about this recently. That um, you know, that the whole share house sort of broke up at um, with lockdowns. Yes. Oh, I do not want to be locked up with these random share house. Yeah, take me but, home. Mum's going to look after me and cook for yeah, me. Yeah, and now I'm just a bit sick of mum and dad just quietly trying to tell me what, how to live my life and I want to go back out there. And so there's this sort of, um, you know, coupling up as you meet someone, right, now's it, time to go and rent somewhere. So the actual apartments uh, in Sydney anyway, because the inner city apartment has been slumped. And so we talk about a rental crisis in most areas of family homes mm. there's been a saturation of two bedroom and one bedroom units in sydney for quite some time but all of a sudden there's demand for those have gone up um so it's oh with the share houses yeah. yeah yeah well it's it's the this yeah the change in in behavior um but also we haven't yet had um immigration uh ramp back up again and, that, mm. and that's all back being talked about in political circles and um Bring it, you know, we've got a, we've got a labour supply problem. We absolutely yeah. need professionals to come, but where yep. are we going to put them? Exactly. Mm. Well, they can go in all those two-bedroom, one-bedroom um, apartments in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. But the problem is, of course, what about those that come out with families? Yes, absolutely. So, so we've got some external supply factors that are going to start to hit us to actually address some of the um, labour shortages that we have in some professional fields. And, and construction uh, field, just quietly. Construction, so even, another even hospitality. <laughs> I have to tell you, I don't walk past any cafes, coffee shops, pubs that don't have signs saying need front of house staff, need, you know, that 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 still I think is undersupplied as people mm. went to other areas. Um, I'd love to see what, God, wouldn't it be interesting to do, a, um, do some research on the labour market at the moment because I think the whole mix has changed significantly. But anyway, uh, I'm depressed. 
I've spoken to a number of people in hospitality and sometimes they've actually had to close for shifts because they haven't had staff. Yes, but there's can't do lunch today because we don't have lunch. Red Rooster. I went to Red Rooster with the kids the other day. I was closed because they could not get staff. Oh, wow. Mm. So they, um, yeah, they've got these apps now so you don't need a waiter because you can actually just scan it with a QR code on your phone and do all your ordering from the table. And that's sort of one of those contactless things that came in through COVID, but mm. it's stuck around in many places because we can't afford the staff to take the order. The so therefore, you know, that'll do that'll do just nicely. Yeah. Thanks. yeah. I know we're not really talking about first home buyers here, but you guys are tenants, right? But it's yeah, but some people are rent vesters as well. <laughs> mm. And they're tenants at the moment trying to work out how to get into the market. And and this is this is a part of the big picture. And when you're a first home buyer, you have to understand the big picture and how the big picture affects your ability yeah. to get into the market. So it, it it all does sort of fall into into place. But it's it's really the perfect storm. So we've got the decrease in supply and the increase in demand, and it's mm. bloody heartbreaking to watch. It yeah. is. Even as a property management firm, to get 15, 20 applications on a property and have every one of those applicants ringing up begging to be the successful applicant is heartbreaking. It's just awful. You know, and I just think as, as you know, having a young family and just being staring down the barrel of like potentially not having a home. Where do I live? Kids. Yeah, how do I look after these children? There was an article came out um, today. We're recording this on the 8th of June. An article came out today saying there's up to 50,000 people who are in crisis. They they actually have nowhere to go. Mm. Their property's been sold um, and they need to vacate, and that's real. That's happening, and most of those properties are being bought by first-time buyers or upgraders, not not investors. You've got something that's contributed to the problem of lack of supply, floods and bushfires. Good point. I have actually because <laughs> I actually had notes on that somewhere. I wonder why I didn't say it. Um, so, we've got, yeah, flooding, bushfires, uh, lack of tradies. So there are some properties that are, you know have had leaky roofs with the weather, so this amount of rain that has been around. Mm. When those properties become mouldy and there's a massive mould problem Everywhere at the moment in southeast Queensland, I don't know what Sydney's doing, but Same oh my Sydney. god, yeah. it is phenomenal. Um, and, and that all of those sorts of things can lead to a property not being able to be habited, inhabited. Mm. Yeah, good point. So it's just, yeah, one thing after another. It's quite bizarre, you know, so many times, particularly on the elephant in the room, it's just <laughs> different people we've interviewed. There's your dogs, different people that we've interviewed. Um, over various disciplines and and each and every time it's like this you know COVID's brought around acceleration of 10 years of change into into one year or two years certainly this this housing situation in Australia and the housing affordability it is well and truly beyond just helping first home buyers get into the market this is about having everybody with that basic human right of secure housing yeah um we, we do have an absolute cry. I think the word crisis is misused a lot in this country and so yeah. we all become a bit desensitised to it. But we do have a crisis in this area. Um, There's no doubt. Yeah, yeah. But you and I are on the same page about that. You know, sometimes we can debate and, and have different opinions and we come from different states and all that sort of thing. But, but I think for this one, Veronica... I don't think the media is overplaying it. I don't think they're mm. overstating it. I don't think they're reaching for a headline. This is actually happening and we're seeing it. We're seeing it on the ground. We're seeing people who is the, and and so the solu- and the solution is not easy. That there's no well, quick and easy solution to to this. I think 
the word there is quick. There is no quick solution. If you think about it, how long does it take to build or construct um, property? It takes a long time to construct any inhabitation. Inhabitation. a house takes anything habitable is is, is yeah months, and whether months, it's months. units or that's, townhouses or houses or and that's just when you've hit first nail you know like mm. it's, it's the planning the 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 just everything there's just a huge long supply chain and then we've got um supply chain issues mm. and you know we talked about staffing issues but we've got a, a real real issue with rising um construction costs Absolutely. and just a lack of stuff to build from and people who are part of it. I saw that to get an engineer to do plans for a renovation or a new build has pushed out four months. That's just the engineer. Yeah. That's not even getting it through, you know, the whole approval process. So this isn't going to get solved quickly. And then you've got mm. people living in caravans and tents. Um, and it's just, in cars. Yeah. Um, mortifying. That's, that's yeah. So, so, so some of the options that, that need to be explored, and, and you and I are not going to solve this here, but I think what we want to do is open up people's thinking to the bigger picture. It's not just about the fact that rents are rising. There's a whole lot of factors that have led to this, and so the solution to it isn't small, quick, easy, or a single dart that, that's going to, to pop the balloon. It's, it's, there's actually so many things that have gone into how it's happened and there are so many things that need to be looked at because unintended consequences are the biggest thing that wreck bar- property markets. They wreck a lot of things, but, you know, you can think <laughs> let's go down this path, but what, what are the unintended consequences that actually the effect of pulling in, reining in investor activity was, well, there's less supply of investment properties. Mm. Oh, well, you know, let's get more people to buy properties. Not everyone can buy a property. Not everyone's in a position to or wants to buy a property. There are just going to be people who rent. So um, the unintended consequence has been a, a, a narrowing of the options for, for renters to the point, you know, you take into account whether, as you said, um, economic factors, appetite for investment, um, returns, all those sorts of things. There's so many factors that go into whether someone wants to invest in the private residential property market and therefore supply more housing to tenants. And now you've got interest rates going up, which you might think means investors won't want to get involved, but the bizarre thing is that the tax benefits of investing in property have been less because of really low interest rates. <laughs> it does mean you've got to lose money to make money. Um, so you know, and what I mean by that is for every dollar you lose, you might get, I don't know, how, what's some 42, high, 40, 37 or something. 37 or 42 that, or something. So that, that yeah. math doesn't add up. And, so, and, and th- remember, uh, property investors, most property investors aren't on the highest tax bracket. No. They're not. They're not high income earners. They are day-to-day people with jobs who have made a decision to sacrifice some money to invest for their long-term future, which actually provides housing for people in the short term. So we're not talking about people that are on the highest tax bracket necessarily. They, they could be in that, that you know, second or third tier below. Yeah, I just, I just saw some data today quite interesting around about the makeup of basically who is owning our investment properties in this country. Mm-hmm. And the proportion of people owning more um, two as opposed to one has actually increased a little bit, interestingly okay. enough. That, um, but um, the value of those investment properties, so the average value, 28% value between 250 and 500,000 
and 21% between 500 and 750,000. And then it sort of goes down from there. So the bulk of um, Australians owning investment properties, they're not big cats, you know what I mean? They're not mm. massively expensive properties. Mm. They're sitting somewhere between, so it's 49%, so it's nearly half, is value between 250 and 750,000. That's interesting. And actually most investors only own one property. 68% own one. That's the latest. That's, it used to be 71%, 72%, um, and only 4% own four or more. Yeah. So they're not, Which is, we're not talking big into town here that no, provide our housing, it's our rental housing. Big, big bugbears against Labor's um, negative gearing policy back in 2019 because, mm-hmm. you know, they get on Bill Shorten and what's his name, you see, get on again. Oh, why should some fat cat be able to get their sixth investment property when, you know, poor battlers are not being able to afford to buy their first home? It's yeah. like, if you just look here, the stats are four or more properties owned by only 4% of investors. Tiny, mm. tiny segment. Teeny, tiny. Yeah, and the yet biggest eight, amount of supply. But 80% of the people that were using negative gearing were in the lowest uh, income bracket. Yep. So, yep. That's know. something we need to understand because it's not an us and them. It's this whole us and them mentality around mm. tenants and, and um, property investors. We've got to reframe that and rethink it because... If there aren't enough of those people who want to own an investment property, just every day, hardworking, earn their income, decide that's an investment strategy they want to pursue and they sacrifice for it, then you can't you can't keep pushing those people out of the marketplace because who's going to re- replace them? Well, that's Let's the, talk about that. Let's talk about the options. Who's going to replace them? Well. Yeah. <laughs> We, we need to we need things that encourage investor activity, and I don't mean like ridiculous incentives. And we don't want these first home buyer type incentives that encourage investors to get into to new properties, because they aren't good investment strategies, and they're not what tenants want. So we have to have housing that tenant tenants want. We need we need something that goes. You know, we're back up to you know in our business we're back up to thirty five percent investors as opposed to owner occupiers. But it's a long way to go back to where we were, you know, to get that balance. But we're a long way off where we need to be in terms of having the right amount of supply. So there has to be some really hard looks at encouraging investor activity, but understanding the consequences, unintended and intentional, of what those those um, sorts of legislative or, or, or incentive based or, or um, you know, what it is that we're doing. So I think what's interesting, though, in a typical year, there's 100,000 first-home buyers. Uh, the last couple of years, I think it's been 160,000. That's been mm. because of increased government incentives. Um, it was a home builder program and also I think the home loan guarantee that, you know, were really quite um, effective in bringing forward uh, a lot of first-home buyers. So you, might, you guys might think it's hard to buy your first home, and it is, but 60,000 people extra bought their first home last year than was expected mm. fundamentally. So it's not impossible, clearly, otherwise <laughs> you wouldn't be doing it. Um, but if you look at the proportion, you know, there are 2.6 million renting. It's a much bigger proportion of the total population than every yeah. year the first home buyer um, proportion. So, you know, and I know a, a big argument against encouraging investors in the market is that, oh, but they're taking property away from first home buyers. And I think mm. there's got to be better ways for governments to to actually help first home buyers 
um, at the same time as not discouraging investors. investors. You know what I mean? There, there needs mm. to be cleverer ways to go about that than what's been suggested and certainly what's been done in the past. Um, and there is a whole new um, segment of the market that is very much underway and will make it it'll be quite a game changer, I think, once these build-to-rent um, complexes start hitting the market. But they've mm. got to have the right type of properties, properties. as well. Yeah. Yeah, it can't just be two bedroom apartments. So let's talk about that build to rent because that's a really interesting market. There's about twenty five thousand households in the pipeline at the pipeline at the moment in Australia that are specifically build to rent. Now it's a five year pipeline, so it's not going to happen overnight. But that but that's a significant supply. But there a lot of these are sort of oriented around community culture amenities. So they're not they they're not actually you know your entry level rental type places they're actually aimed more at um people who have a, a little bit more discretionary in income to spend on their rent so it's going to potentially be aimed at some of those longer term renters or, or or people who want a lifestyle aspect not necessarily a house so not necessarily family but perhaps um you know a couple singles share household and so forth these kinds of things might allow basic modifications. They might allow pets, um, and that, but 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 the big thing about rent to buy, and we're not we're not advocating that this is the answer to anything. It's just one of a, an array of solutions with you know a lot of risk management over the yeah, top. Build to rent, not rent to buy. Rent to buy. <laughs> build to rent. Build to rent. Terms. You're the one that's got fog brain, not me. I know. <laughs> I believe I've run it quite well. Um, but the secu- the thing is that they have so the security of longer leases. Mm. So when you've got an investor, if their circumstances change, they might need to sell a property, or if you know their job changes, or they move overseas, or there's a parting of the ways of a of a partnership. These things can all lead to changes for for the tenant. Whereas they, these ones that are really built just to be rentals, you can be there as long as you're paying the rent and so forth and doing your tenancy right and, and looking after the property and, and so forth. They're not selling these things next to you. They're long term. Yeah, yeah. So, so it actually, on the positive side, gives some longevity to your ability to stay in a property if that's what your needs are. And I like that for people. Also gives um, investors who might want another way to invest in, in property, in residential property, mm. at a whole different investment class, really. Yeah. Um, as well, you, there'd be investment trusts and various things that you could probably buy shares in. Um, but I think, too, that honestly the governments have to actually step it up with more in the way of social housing. And, and I've been... You know, over the years, I've been um, not an advocate for too much social housing, mainly because my observation, having lived quite close to quite a lot of it many times, is, well, you know, teach a man to fish, he'll fish for a day. What's it? Fish, mm. Feed a man to fish, he'll eat for a day. A man of, yeah. Teach a man to fish and he'll fish forever, eat forever. Oh, God, I'm in total fog right now. And <laughs> which is a slightly paternalistic and arrogant of me, to be quite frank, to say that. But, but, but at the same time, I, I don't. I don't think that giving people um, uh, anything without the tools and the, and the um, support to actually build themselves out of a situation, um, I don't think it's good for society. So, but, but we have to look after those who can't look after themselves. Mm. 
you know, we do. And then we have to look after the people that don't, can't put a roof over their kids' heads. Like it, it's just not, it's not a right society that actually lets families live in tents. Mm. I just don't think it is. Yeah. Um, which was never the intention, um, and we're fun. certainly not suggesting that that was, you know, that, <laughs> that was never the intention of any sort of policy or decision-making along the way. No, but it's created it's a just, hole. It's, it's, it's a storm of things that came on top of some of those bad decisions, weather, climate, you know, um, circumstances, COVID, pandemic, all those sorts of things contributed. But there are other things that need to be looked at, you know, whether there's incentives to get empty nesters into smaller homes or apartments and that frees up some supply that is in the family space or looking at stamp duties, transfer duty. Now, it's one of the biggest barriers to entry for first home buyers and investors is is how much they've got to actually stump up up front. You know, well, not actually, it, this is the I think this is a problem is that in the investors if you already and this is the secret guys you know once you get your first home and you buy one that actually goes up in value which is why you're listening to this podcast not going out there just money from the government. Um, so you get an asset that goes up in value. You see equity growing, which is amazing, right? That's wonderful. It's just magic, right? Then you have enough of that. Then you can actually go and borrow against that equity and go and buy an investment property and start building your property wealth empire, right? This is the, the holy grail. I've been slightly dung and cheap, but the reality is this is really how it works. And so an investor that's not a rent investor, not buying their first property as an investment property, they are not stumping up um, stamp duty. They're borrowing that money because they've got equity in their home. You know, they're digging into that. So technically they're not saving up any more money. Once you've saved up that first deposit and you've made the good decision to buy a really good asset, then the rest of your life, as long as you've got a good income, is sorted. And I love, I love that and your passion is amazing. But the <laughs> fact is I still think it is something that state governments have to look at because that barrier to entry is high and it is a large outlay for investors to make as opposed to some of the concessions that are offered to owner-occupiers. So I think look, it does need to be looked at. It needs to be looked at um, in terms of major tax reform. There's no doubt about it. Mm. My, my personal jury is out as to whether that's going to free up supply because it also reduces the barrier to entry. So, you know, is it going to bring more stock on the market and that's going to make life easier and therefore more investors are going to, it takes away that, because it takes away that barrier. And I oh, know I'm just confusing. Actually, COVID brain is just getting totally off. hit me. Because <laughs> I'm just, here because I've we're changed something that we're, we're, yeah. Remember, <laughs> let's cut this. Go back to pre this because it's a good argument, but what we're saying in this section, Veronica, is, these are things that can be looked at, yeah, not yeah, yeah. why they should or why they shouldn't, no, but no, these no. are the, some of the things that can be looked at. Don't, sorry, editor, cut that whole ramble of mine. I'm not even <laughs> going to replace it with anything. <laughs> so let's go back to <clears throat> another thing that can be looked at is stamp duty. <clears throat> Ready? So another area that can actually be looked at is stamp duty or transfer duty because this is a really high barrier to entry and there is a difference between what investors pay and what owner-occupiers pay in terms of the concession. So it is something that I think state by state is one of the areas as part of a bigger solution that should be examined. Um, and, and, you know, you and I can debate and will debate what that might look like but it, it is part of a bigger solution, I think. And, and, you know, look at interest rates. Look at interest rates. At the moment, institutions can't offer a discount 
off the variable, the standard variable advertised interest rate to investors. And I still don't think you can get an interest only loan for investment, can you? Um, I think you can, but that's come they're, back in? they're quite tight in terms of how long. Um, I think, look, the problem is that, of course, investors have been set up to be, um, you know, the evil evil mm. landlord and, and it, rule us and them sort of mentality. It's like, um, and, and, and I don't think that's helpful to the debate either. I don't think because, it is either. Yeah. I think because now we're seeing the, the outcome, the impact of, yeah. of putting the brakes on investment. Yeah. And it's actually the tenant that is suffering. Yeah. And I think that, that really pulls this entire episode to its critical point. It's the people that are suffering here are people who can't find somewhere to rent, you know, at a reasonable price. Yep. And it's appalling. And, and probably it's impact, impacting some of the listeners as well because you guys are trying to save money to buy a home in a world of increasing rents. It's, it's not a great, it's not great. We're not, it has this, an impact on that savings capability. So this episode isn't so much to provide any real solutions for you guys. We just hope you but don't mind our understand, ramblings on this. <laughs> yeah, but to understand how it all or how the, how this all come into a, into effect, mm. um, and, and you know there always needs to be a balance, a really delicate balance between encouraging investment and the needs of owner occupiers and first home buyers. There has to be that balance because there are all parts of the property market. You can't just legislate or advocate for for one section of the market without understanding the impact that yeah. it has on other sections of the market. And I think that's, it, you know, but it needs to be pursued for the net benefit of people having a home to live in that they can afford. Um, and, and we're not talking about being able to, you know, live on Bondi Beach and have a gorgeous outlook. We're actually looking about, we're talking about the basics of being able to house your family close to a school that your children go to or close enough to your workplace that you can commute or close enough to um, your elderly family members that you may have to care for. You know, these are the basics that we're talking about and it is as much about the supply side of the equation as it is about the demand side of the equation. And right now, both of those things are working terribly in opposition to each other to create an undersupply and an over-demand. And what it does at the absolute end of the day, it really just underpins why it's so important that if you can buy yourself your own home, that is the greatest way to give yourself that security. Um, and, you know, I know you don't need us to tell you that and I, I don't want to come across self-interested in saying that even. It's just a bit of a fact. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.